Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, the faculty lead for history at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. We are smack dab in the middle of the holiday season. Christmas has just passed, but New Year's is still yet to come. It's a time of transition, as the days start to get longer again and spring will eventually reappear. One person for whom the end of the year is particularly noteworthy is my guest today, Charles Reed, who is an associate professor of history at Elizabeth City State University in North Carolina. December 31st is noteworthy because it will mark the end of his year-long benevolent reign as president of HNET, Humanities and Social Sciences Online. Today, Chaz and I will discuss his background, and then we're going to go on a long, wandering tour of the history profession, making some recommendations along the way. Come join us. So what is your name, and what do you do? Uh, my name is Charles, or, or Chaz Reed. I am an associate professor of history at Elizabeth City State University in North Carolina. It is a historically black college and HBCU. Founded in, in 1891 as a normal school, a teaching school to train African-American teachers. And since that time has developed into a, a, a university um, and part of the University of North Carolina system. There I am the program coordinator for both history and our online program in interdisciplinary studies. And I am also finishing up a term as the president of, of HNET. All right. And we're going to talk about both of those careers or job duties, whatever you want to call those. We'll talk about those uh, in a few minutes here. But f- before we get there, can you tell us a little bit about your academic and your professional background? How, how did you get to this point in your life? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, to start to start at the very beginning, when I was growing up, I had a, a grandfather who had something like a fourth or fifth grade education. His parents came to the U.S. from, it's debated, but Germany or Eastern Europe, somewhere in that vicinity. And actually, and my, my other great grandparents on, on my mother's side were French speaking Walloons from Belgium. So I always like to bring up that experience in terms of in, engaging with people is that some of us aren't that far removed from coming here, as it were. But my grandfather had something like a fourth grade education, but he was utterly fascinated with the world. He read the, the newspaper cover to cover every day. We would sit around and, and, and talk about history and talk about, I mean, first, the things that, that he had lived through whether it was the Great Depression or serving in the Pacific in the Second World War. And I think that's really where my interest in, in history really developed. So as a kid, my my grandparents would buy me just, I don't know, boxes full of books, which I would I would devour. But I think that, yeah, so I think that's where my interest in history started. Though I didn't know that this was like a real job that you could do until I started college. I was a first-generation college student. I was the, the first person in my family to to go to, to college other than maybe my uncle. And the first day of class, I had this, this world history class. It was over those next few weeks that I realized that a historian who, who teaches, I don't know why this hadn't occurred to me before this, but that this was a, a profession that, that you could take up. So my professor that semester, whose name is Donna Simpson, became my un- became one of my undergraduate mentors. I changed my major from political and economic philosophy because I thought I wanted to be a lawyer when I started uh, undergrad. Uh, I changed it to history, and I guess <laughs> Good choice. Uh, the rest was the rest was a uh, history. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, well done. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I don't know how far along you want me to go in this journey, but I I did a master's in early modern and modern European history at Marquette in Milwaukee, 
And then I did a PhD at the University of Maryland with a very fine British historian named Richard Price. And so after that came the CCSU job. So I very luckily followed a, a very traditional path of you know, school, 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 and then employment as, as a tenure track professor. How did you pull that off in this modern day where nobody gets tenure track jobs? How did you well, pull that off? Yeah, I don't know how I pulled it off. I can say that, that teaching at an HBCU has been incredibly rewarding. The thing about working at an institution like an ECSU is that you really can live the mission in ways that, that you might not be able to in other places. And really, the place exists to to, to serve a, a community who didn't have other opportunities or, or even resources at that moment in the past. And certainly there are other options now, but it serves um, the region of Northeastern North Carolina um, not just the African-American community, the entire community of, of Northeastern North Carolina in terms of economic development, in terms of social mobility. And you really can make a difference in students' lives. And they appreciate that. And they keep up with you. And you watch them you know, develop as students. And you watch them after they leave you and, and they keep up with you. And of course, this is, my, this is my only job as a faculty member. So certainly you experience those things in other places. But you know, there's something about it that, that, that makes it feel... Especially rewarding to be able to really make a difference in a way that's very concrete, in, in my view. I wonder if that's part of that is because you know every university they always have the you know the same mission statements that you know we, we want to create an educated population and you know critical thinkers and the, the wording is always different but the the basic storyline is the same. But with an HBCU, it feels like there's kind of that extra component on top of it where they're they're rooting for a specific group of people not at the expense of other groups of people, but a historically underprivileged group of people. And so it, it does kind of make sense that there probably would be more of a, I mean, there's more of a mission, it, it seems like anyway. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's a history and a legacy behind it in ways that are present in you know, the experiences of students today, in the social and political and cultural environment of today that are more tangible, I think, in, than you know, the, the relationship between the mission and the experience of students at, at other places. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about your job there. So obviously, you're a professor of history. You said that you're in charge of a couple of programs there. So what does a, what does a day in the life look like for Chaz Reed at UCSU? Because we're because we're a small institution, we have departments that include maybe more programs than than what you would expect at at a at a larger school or maybe at a private liberal arts school. So I'm in a department that includes a bunch of the social sciences and some other programs. So as as the coordinator, I largely act as the liaison between the department chair and and the history faculty in terms of sort of scheduling, um, in terms of recruiting students. A few years ago, we as a program faced a challenge that, that lots of history programs are facing today. We were facing declining enrollments. There are lots of things that you can read about this. This is something that, that the AHA has sort of worked very hard to try to understand what's going on um, and what accounts for what has been perceived to be a, a decline across the board of history majors. And there has been some more recovery. I forget I forget where it was, and you might remember where this was, at, at, at one of the Ivies that, that history has made a, you know, a really significant turnaround and is one of the majors with the highest enrollments. I want to say... I want to say Yale, but I could be making that up. Yeah, um, I, I think it was Yale. I mean, I think the I think the stuff you're referring to is that over the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of work coming out of the AHA where they talked about how looking at the numbers of total enrollments in undergraduate history programs, 
since 2008, there's something like nationwide, there's something like a 30% drop in enrollments for history programs, undergraduate history programs between 2008 and 2017, uh, which has set the entire profession into a tizzy because, oh God, what are we going to do if all of our students disappear? They're, you know, that's what does that mean for history and all of that? I think, yeah, and and I think there was like one shining point. <laughs> I think it was Yale. But at the same time, it's like, okay, yeah, but people that can go to Yale are the people that don't really have to, you know, I'm generalizing terribly here, but a lot of people at Yale don't have to worry about future careers. <laughs> and so it, it's it's kind of weird about how, yeah, that's kind of held up as a, you know, the, the, the exception to the rule. I don't know if that's a very good exception, but anyway, yes, uh, but it is something that we've all had to deal with. And um, at some institutions, obviously been hit harder than others. And there's been a lot of guessing around the profession as to what the reasons are behind it, whether it's just money, whether it's future people concerned about future careers in the wake of the Great Recession. It's a very open open question, but it is causing a lot of angst amongst our, among the rest of us in the profession. Right, and so the, so there's been a, a quite a bit written about this. The AHA has been kind of led the efforts to, to try to figure out and think about what's going on and what strategies we need to embrace moving forward. Um, and there's been some really good stuff about that. Um, there was an article just last week that I saw that focused on providing professional development and explaining to students what they can do with a history major and how to do a CV and just really basic things like that that students really embraced and helped them. But for us, as a, as a very small institution that was facing overall enrollment decline at that point in, I don't know, 2011, 2012, with a population that is, is looking for education for them is, I mean, not to, not, to over, not to generalize the experience of Yale students, but it's a different demographic. And there are students who are looking to college as a vehicle of social mobility and really it is. I mean, particularly HPCUs, I like to think of them as sort of slingshots of social mobility in terms of, of what they contribute to, to their communities and to their students. So often, you know, when students think about a history major, they think, well, what am I going to do with that? The thing that we all face when we, <laughs> we go to Thanksgiving dinner. Right. You've got to deal with the parents. Yeah. What kind of job are you going to get with that? And like at the old open house where, where you try to talk to students and their parents are sort of tugging them away and taking them to whatever the technology table or professional track programs, things like that. Things that lead to a very clear professional pathway, right? Like if you major in this, this is what you're going to do. So that was a struggle for us. And, and we faced enormous challenges. The history major has been eliminated at, at a number of small and even medium-sized schools across the country. We, we talked to the HA. We worked as a group to, to sit together as history faculty and think about what do we need to do to turn this around, to um, appeal to this, these students, and to make this a viable major. And so, I mean, that has been much of my task for the last few years. I'm glad to say that the history major has grown um, significantly over the last, say, two years. Part of that is that we revised the curriculum to introduce two interdisciplinary concentrations, one in digital and public history, which is meant to provide students with that solid base of a history major that, that we know and value, but also to prepare them for technology and the, the digital age in which we live to give them, I mean, I like to think of them as added value skills that, that are appealing when we think about students applying for jobs and making, making their possibilities, their opportunities a little more diverse. The second concentration we introduced was in race, race, gender, and ethnicity studies. 
the idea of that was that, in particular, we had a panel at the AHA a couple of years ago with some faculty, including at least one or two department chairs of um, history programs at, at HBCUs. And, and one of the big things to come out of that conversation is that our students benefit when the past that they study looks like them. Not to say that we should only talk about one group of people, but that the version of history that's often taught isn't particularly appealing to, you know, uh, for instance, uh, you know, an African-American student, because it's not, it doesn't seem to be about them in many cases. So, I mean, that was one of the, the real efforts was not to pander or, you know, try to teach a particular group, but to try to adjust our and recalibrate our curriculum in a way that reflected the people who we were trying to recruit and trying to teach and who we wanted to take meaning out of this. And I think if we think about all of our experiences of how we became historians and how we we came to appreciate the, the parts of history that we appreciate and things like that. It's all intimately connected to our personal experiences, I think, in many ways. And it's the same for undergraduates. So that has been part of our effort. And the rest of it has been kind of marketing and trying to teach students. And this is this is the toughest thing, I think. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work to change curriculum, but it's it's really way more difficult to help students kind of internalize and understand and be able to articulate and communicate what the history degree does for them and how they can use that out in the world. Because you want mm -hmm. them to leave. If you're telling them, look, the history degree can do a lot of things for you. You can be a teacher. You can go to grad school. You can go to law school. And those are all obvious trajectories and great things. And we're proud of you if you do those things. But there are also many, many, many other things that you can do with a history degree. So preparing them to go out in the world and actually do that strikes me to be one of the most important jobs that we have. So preparing them and really convincing them, right? Because they have to believe it first before they can go out and convince a potential employer that these skills are applicable to whatever they're trying to do. That has been really at the core of, of our effort. And so far, it's been working well. We have to keep going and keep and keep fighting and keep growing and keep marketing and keep recruiting. But those are all things that, that we've done and things that we've thought about. You know, I've encountered some people who say, look, we value history for what it is. We can't change because, you know, people want job ready majors right quote unquote job ready majors and and that's fair i mean history is inherently valuable what we do is inherently valuable and we're not changing that but but i think in terms of how we communicate that and how we teach our students to talk about that is is something that 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 we need to change or something that we often need to work on yeah and i think that's true pretty much across the profession uh that's something that we need to share we need to make sure our students are able to, to kind of vocalize this stuff because we hear all the time about google is looking for liberal arts people instead of coders because there's millions of coders out there but google needs people that are trained to kind of navigate the intersection between people and technology or you know corporation x they're really valuing critical thinking and so they're tending to go for humanities and all of that that's great and all but that there is still a disconnect there because we still have to produce students that are able to demonstrate to those employers that they're who they're looking for basically because employers say they're looking for it and our students are looking for it it's just a matter of getting them everybody to, to use the same language to be able to talk to each other to convince match students with potential employers and all that and i think that's something that every program, grad program, and even undergraduate program needs to do better at. We need, I've been kind of thinking that we need to have more professionalization type courses or parts of courses or something in all history programs to kind of help students to start thinking along those lines. 
Because, yeah, everybody thinks, oh, you're going to be a history major, that means you're going to teach. Or, oh, that means you're going to be a college professor. Well, we all know that the percentage of people that go through a history program is going to be, a, there's a very few of them that are going to ever become full-time professors anywhere. So they have to start thinking about where else they're going to work. And I think as a field, we can do better. And, and I know the AHA is, has launched all kinds of initiatives to try to figure this stuff out too. And, and that's awesome. And I hope that that really um, works out. And But I think that is something that we all have to take into account. Yeah. And I also think that we were all, I mean, those, those of us who are historians now, we're, we're probably history majors. Um, and things turned out comparatively well for us. So I think that maybe we don't think about these things with the kind of depth and, you know, see the need as much as what's there, right? What students really do need. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, that's, this is, that's kind of the core problem is that because we've got, you've got professors teaching these students how to look for non-professor jobs. <laughs> and so that's, that is difficult for us to do because yeah like you say you and i we've done pretty well in the in the career we've 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 made it work we've got um you know we've got gigs that work for us with that are historians and all that but the if the vast majority of students are not going to become historians it, it can be difficult for people like you and i to teach them that uh, because we haven't gone through it to the same extent we've all done th- our you know our adjuncting stints and all of that so we know the we, we we can empathize with that part of it, but yeah, finding, I mean, I've never worked in an archive, so it's kind of hard for me to provide suggestions, so I think it is something that we kind of have to do collectively. It's not something that just a couple people can do. It's pretty much the entire historical community is going to have to come together and figure this stuff out. Right, and I mean, all the data is there that, I mean, for instance, you know, the argument, like, like you indicated, is that with the development of technology and automation, all these sort of things, that liberal arts majors are going to become increasingly important. If you look at the data for, for lifetime earnings, overall, they're generally a little bit lower for early career humanities majors, but in the end, they, they make it up or more. So all the data is there. I think you're right. I mean, I think there, there is, but could be more of a collective conversation about, about how to do this. Um, I mean, and there's the same conversation in graduate programs of there are only so many tenure track faculty positions out there. So if we're producing graduate students, it's our responsibility to be able to help them navigate what they're going to do once they get out of here. There are nearly endless possibilities, I think, in terms of the skill set that both an undergraduate and a graduate degree degree in history provide. One other thing, and I'll, and I'll, 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 I'll get off of this topic, but... I don't know if you've if you've ever talked, but um, there's this really great uh, professor named David Trowbridge at Marshall who developed the Clio app. I don't know. Are you, are you familiar with the Clio app at all, Rob? I am, and I was actually toying with the idea at one point of assigning that as a, a, a term project to all the students to make them find something that is local to them to write on. He and I were uh, emailed back and forth a couple times actually about it, and um, he's got some lesson plans in there for doing that. Um, I wasn't able to quite ever pull it together in time because you know how the beginning of a semester is. You have all these grand ideas, and then they fall apart because you only have a week to put everything together. But uh, it is something that I'd like to do at some point. I think it's a really cool way for students to understand what historians do, but also do something that gets them into that public history mindset rather than an academic history mindset. I really like that. Yeah, so so plug, go download, um, it's theclio.com, I think the, the app just comes up under Clio, and it's this really fantastic crowdsourced way of documenting local history, but uh, that's not my point, um, but he, he's talked a lot about 
using some to kind of contextualize Confederate memorials and things like that, things that are, are controversial. So using something like Clio, which someone can download, right, and go to whatever, mem- you know, the Confederate memorial and see, well, this is the history. This is what was said at the unveiling of this memorial, right? This is what it meant. This is what was happening at the time and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a great app and everyone should go download it and use it. But he was part of this, this the HA Tuning Project that I participated in I, six years ago now. There have been a few rounds of it. And the, the idea of it was doing exactly what we're talking about, which is to identify and explain what the history major should do, like what skills and what knowledge should people come out of the history major with. And most people think it's like, let's memorize all the facts about Napoleon. And right. But, but for those of us who do do this, know that it's it's not about memorizing dates or it's about it's about skills it's about writing it's about communication it's about thinking it's about being able to sort through information and things like that so he went and had conversations with local employers in where is marshall i forget it's in west virginia um oh i should be ashamed of myself but anyway um and he explained these things to them right he said this is what history majors do these are the skills that that history majors come out of of the degree with and from his recounting of it these employers were completely shocked, right? They had no idea what they would get um, with a history major. And some of them said, well, why don't you send us some history majors then? Because this this sounds really great. So I think that's the other part of it. And I think students are our best ambassadors on, on that front in terms of engaging with um, the community and engaging with employers and engaging with to kind of educate them. But but I think we also have some role in that. I'm not completely sure what that role is other than being ambitious like David Trowbridge and going and talking to people. <laughs> right. Yeah, even if we're not able to summon up a group of CEOs to go talk to or something, I think working on it from the student perspective is another way to do it. Is yeah, we need Because the key is basically to figure out the corporate world's language. And if we can work out their lingo and then basically adapt the skills of the historian to that lingo, then then I think we'd have a much, much higher success rate. And I know there's a lot of people, you know, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to adopt corporate speak and jingo and all of that. But at the same time, you know, if we're looking for people that are looking for full-time jobs in with among private employers, that's kind of what we have to do because that's what they're looking for. Otherwise, they don't know what they're getting into if they just start bringing in students that can't speak their language. I like to think of it as kind of infiltrating from from the out, from the inside, you know. But by the way, these uh, Fortune 500 CEOs generally don't return my calls, so there's only so much to do. There. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> it's like you get all the rejections from academia, and then all the rejections from the CEOs. It's like, eh, <laughs> all right, whatever. Let's go back to adjuncting for a while. Well, that's really cool to hear that you are uh, that enrollment is going up. Um, like like we've been saying, I mean that in in this era with with falling enrollments, that's great that you guys have been able to reverse that. And it does make a lot of sense that you're able to do it in a kind of a niche way by you're looking at the you're looking at your student population and you're figuring what works for them, what appeals to them. And I think that's something that a lot of universities are going to kind of have to do going forward because with the rise of mega universities, as they're called in you know, the Chronicle of Higher Education, like my own SNHU and all of that, there's going to be, you've got kind of the Walmart that's coming in to stomp all over local universities and all of that. And I think that's one of the ways that local universities are going to have to kind of thrive is by cultivating specific student populations and going with what works for them. And it kind of sounds like that's what you're doing with, with ECSU. I'm not saying that you guys are under threat from any outside universities or anything. Maybe you are, I don't know. But I think that's just kind of the general 
strategy that all universities are going to have to take is just try to cultivate specific student base student bases because students have so many choices now with online programs uh, whereas before they were kind of may have, maybe they were restricted by geography but when you've got all these outside online programs there's a lot of competition there and so in order to cultivate people to come to specific schools they're going to have to really start focusing their efforts on specific populations I think yeah yeah I, I certainly think I think that's right. Um, I mean, another thing that's benefited us, at least in the last year, has been that ECSU is um, one of the three participating institutions um, in something called NC Promise, which is that in-state students pay, there are other fees and things, but in-state students pay $500 per semester in tuition, which an institution can't educate you for that, right? So the state is subsidizing some of that bill. But the idea of the NC Promise is to make education accessible and affordable in ways that, I mean, I think it's, it's a radical experiment, but, but so far it's been paying, paying dividends. So as the, as the larger, as the university population enrollment increases, then that can only benefit us. So I think that's also helped too. Well, so let's talk a little bit about your other gig. So you mentioned before that you are the current president of HNET. So, um, first off, what is HNET? And, um, how did you campaign to become president? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I think I was I think I was unopposed. So yeah, I think I think there were a couple of, of, of there might have been a couple of write-in votes, but yeah, um, there wasn't a, a huge amount of competition in, in that particular election. But I'm I'm proud and happy to serve this year as as the president of HNET. So by some accounts, HNET is the largest scholarly organization in the world. It has hold on, I had I had these statistics. I I actually I did a little bit of research for this, believe it or not, Rob. Oh my! Um, so HNET started in um, 1993 as really a, a set of, of listservs. I mean, this is in the days, I mean, the internet obviously existed, right? I mean, Al Gore had invented it. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it had existed, but it wasn't in, it, it wasn't in kind of broad use by, by the general public. So, I mean, in the days that HNET started in sort of 93, 94, we're in our 21st anniversary year right now. And I guess this also, ref, you know, is, the origins of, of my interest in digital history. I was on this old service called Prodigy. Did you ever, did you know anything? About, yeah, did you have the Prodigy Rob? I I know I knew of it, but I didn't get my first internet connected computer until like oh my god, it might have been like ninety six or something. So I think I was a little behind the times on all of that. Well, and so it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't. It, it was later connected to the internet, but it was it was it's it was its own kind of online service with bulletin boards and all those sort of things. And I also had um, to bring out the, to maximize my 1990s nerd merit badge or, or whatever I'm getting for this. Um, I also had a, a bulletin board system, which had sort of games and discussion boards and things like that. And people would dial up through a modem and connect to a little computer. Oh, yes, yes. So the, the, these are the days that we're talking about. So HNET was, was well ahead of its time. I think the World Wide Web came to be in, I don't know, 90, 91 maybe. But, I mean, these are these are the earliest days of of this kind of thing. So 25 years ago, HNET started um, to bring various scholarly communities together in ways that we definitely take for granted now, right? I mean, before this, if you were at, I don't know, you know a little college in northeastern North Carolina, your connections to, to the larger profession were probably going to an occasional conference, talking to your colleagues in the department near, near us in northeastern North Carolina. There, you know, there's Old Dominion, uh, Virginia Wesleyan. There are a couple of colleges, right? But but your professional connections, unless you were a real bigwig, would have been would have been fairly limited. So, HNET was a founded 
to use the power of this new technology to bring together scholarly communities. And it has, and it's continued to do that for the last 25 years. I mean, I think almost all of us owe, well, not all of us, but a lot of us owe whatever job we're in at this moment to, to, to the job guide, probably. I mean, I can't even think of how many conference announcements or you know how many opportunities I've had in, in my career because of things that I responded to on HNET. So I'm losing complete track of time now, but, but two or three years ago, it was decided that the days of the listserv were numbered. We were in a, a kind of new age of digital scholarship and that HNET as an organization, which, oh yeah, so we have something like, hold on, I'm just going to drop random uh, statistics into this while we're talking oh, about that's it. Cool. That makes this respectable. So at this moment, HNET has a little over 21,000 subscribers. We have 179 networks. Um, some hubs, which are the intersections of, of various interests and networks and ideas. You know, we have this really robust reviews program. Uh, the point being that a few years ago, we moved from a listserv platform to what we call the Commons, which is run on a, a software called Drupal. And this has opened up a, a world of possibilities for us in that HNET is no longer simply about getting emails in your mailbox, which Frankly, some of the old timers, and God bless them, because many of them were, you know, founders of networks and and the people who forged all of these wonderful things on HNet. But you know, some of them wanted to keep the email in their mailbox, and that's still part of it. But it's opened up a world of possibilities in terms of digital history projects, in terms of being able to build bibliographies, to be able to compile teaching resources, to be able to provide interactive content and, and timelines and all of this fantastic cool stuff that we can do with digital history. I don't know if this is official yet, but there'll be um, our first peer-reviewed journal should be coming out in the next, I don't know, I think six months. So HNet has really sort of rediscovered itself and its purpose. And I think that's something we're still working out, but it's a, there's so many opportunities and it's such a great place to connect to so many people to, to publish a book review that thousands of people instantly get in their mailbox. is pretty cool. It's timely. You know, it's often something that's been released within the last few months. It's not going to, it's not going to have to, to wait for, you know, the publication, the delays of traditional publishing and probably a lot more people are going to read it. Right, because it's not restricted to one semi-obscure journal with 500 subscribers. It's going to get blasted out to everybody that's, that subscribes to that particular network on HNET. So it does. It has a much faster and probably a much larger footprint than it might have in a other place. And and the other, I think to me the other really great thing about it is is there's this really wonderful kind of cross section of academic humanity in that that we have people who are still graduate students. One of one of the um, one of the review editors on H Empire is a graduate student. At the same time, we have this advisory board of, of many networks, but I'm thinking of my own network, which is H Empire. You know, some of the biggest names in, in imperial and colonial history. And in between there, you know, we have people like me, we have people who have just started. And it opens up so many possibilities in terms of, of finding jobs, of finding conferences, of developing networks, of finding places to publish and people for whom you can publish. And with the commons, it opens up a whole new world of, of being able to, to propose and put together you know, all kinds of, of digital projects. Anything that's technologically possible that we can do, particularly using you know, open source software, or that's another thing, is send some money to HNET. Almost anything is possible <laughs> within reason if, if you want to do it and you're dedicated, no matter where you are, right? You don't have to be you know, the Oxford Don. You don't have to be the big name, right? That it opens possibilities. It democratizes academia, I think, in, in really exciting and useful ways. 
Yeah, and I think it democratizes it, kind of going along with what you're saying there. But I mean, I'm thinking of um, H Podcast, which I I am actually an editor on H Podcast, and I haven't really done a whole lot yet. But we do have some really cool projects kind of in the works that should be interesting. Like we're going to start launching reviews of podcasts, which in some ways analogous to reviews of books, but kind of the same. You know, what is the usefulness of this? Uh, what are the audience for it? Who would be interested in it? What does it do good? What does it do bad? That kind of thing. Um, it won't be the same as an academic because a lot of podcasts are not academic. They're not. They're not meant to be. You know, peer-reviewed, full-on academic endeavors. But uh, there is still kind of going to be an attempt to try to kind of categorize because there are so many history podcasts out there. That how do you, you know, we need to build a system where you can recommend it to the people that it would be best suited for. That kind of thing. And so. There's a lot of cool stuff on, in the works like that. Ten years ago, the idea that, you know, academics would be devoting their time and effort to something like podcasts is, was a little bit, that would be pie in the sky. Uh, and so, so yeah, that's that's one thing I've noticed about HNET is that it, it is able to adapt to new circumstances in an unstuffy way, <laughs> I suppose. I mean, I've been a part of HNET. I mean, I've been on the listserv and all that. I think, I, I think ugh, back to like 2000. 2005, I think I was started when I started subscribing to specific listservs on HNet, and I did see a, a difference when we moved over to the Commons. There used to be a whole lot of kind of vigorous back and forth among some of the networks that I subscribed to back in the old days when it was just the listserv and emails going back and forth, and then all of that just disappeared when they switched over to the Commons. But I think part of that is because yeah, a lot of those were the kind of the old timers that liked that old system and just didn't care for the new system or whatever. But at the same time, yeah, it, it so it felt like it lost some of the kind of back and forth that the old system had, but it does have opportunities for new technologies, new types of projects and all that that I think are going to be good for history going forward because as we've been talking about all along, history is kind of trying to rebrand itself. We're trying to move away from kind of the stuffy old academic stereotypes to something that is more valuable to the broader public at large, you know, through academic work, but also through engaging with the public in projects, digital history, digital humanities, that kind of stuff. So I think HNET is, I think it made a good choice even if even I'm, I'm sure there was some backlash from folks who liked the old system, but I think I think HNet probably is on the right track with that. I mean, I think you're right. That kind of scholarly conversation and debate that characterized the HNet that I even knew when I was a graduate student. I mean, I, I think the, the decline of that to a certain degree even predates the commons, in part because the, the internet has has changed so much in the last 10 or 15 years. And there are all kinds of different forums for engaging in this kind of stuff, right? Like, and, I mean, if you can go to Twitter, you can go to Facebook and, and get you know, a massive audience. Yeah, that's um, true. And, and engage in lots, with lots of different people from different walks of life. To some people, that's more appealing. Also... You know, the kind of specialized scholarly forum that HNet provides. I mean, I think there are ways to reimagine it. And, and I think that's what lots of networks have done to try to get back to at least some of that. But I think in many ways, I don't think that part of it is ever going to come back completely. And that's not just the commons. I think that's just the nature of scholarship and the nature of, of the Internet. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I do I do see your point about a change. And I think um, there's 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 not any going back. And that's what the commons is, is meant to to is to kind of look forward and think about what is HNet going to be in this moment in the future with this internet that looks much much different than it did in 1993 right, right. Um, oh I was going to tell you because you're talking about podcasts so one of the networks that, that I'm working on developing it's in the approval process right now is I think we've settled on H Serious Gaming as its name and the idea will be so I co I'm coming at this from 
something called reacting to the past, which is using historical role-playing based on mostly primary source text to kind of act out things that happened in the past. But but history can change in these games, right? So there's a French Revolution game. The, the way the French Revolution actually played out doesn't have to play out the way it did. And some people have objections to this, right? They say, well, the two students are learning the wrong thing. But actually, I find that students learn what actually happened, even if the game went differently than the real historical moment, because they understand the motivations and they understand how people were thinking, right? They were able to walk in someone else's shoes and represent someone else's shoes. Um, not represent someone else's shoes. Represent <laughs> someone's way of thinking and their shoes as well. So this new network will be about using games, in my case, role-playing games, but not strictly limited to role-playing games. Um, and one of the things, one of our ideas is that we will review games not only from the reacting series, but you know, all sorts of games and use it as a platform to develop games and to, to test games and, and to kind of network and, and see, because there are all of these kind of discrete gaming communities that are engaging in, that are using games for educational ends, but they're not always connected to each other. So yeah, I mean, I think this is something, I mean, just like the podcasting is something that 10 years ago, I don't know, it, probably, I don't know how far, I don't know if we, if, if we would be able to have this conversation. So here using HNET to connect a whole bunch of different communities to create new resources and also to, to bring in people who don't know anything about this. So I think that's actually a really good idea. I mean, when you're talking about the lay public, there's a huge appetite out there for historical video games. You're thinking of things like, you know, Assassin's Creed or um, Red Dead Redemption. Uh, so you've got these these video games that are set in you know, specific historical eras, the game's, you know, sometimes more, sometimes less accurate when it comes to the actual history. But a lot of people, a lot of video gamers really like that type of environment, but they're not, these are not academic historians. These are lay historians that are armchair historians, amateur historians, whatever you want to call it. And so I think something like an HNET network that kind of reaches out to that community i think is a good idea that's one of that's another way that you can kind of bridge the divide between the lay people versus the professional people i think that's a really cool idea go with it do it you have my approval and i i don't for the record i don't like shooting games but i mean i forget what it is you know what it is there's this game that's based in the french revolution if we could harness the technology and just the recreation of 18th century paris that i saw right toward teaching students about the French Revolution, maybe without the shooting part. The, the things that we could do if we if we kind of try to think outside, I hate to say think outside of the box because then you're by definition putting yourself in a box by saying thinking outside of the box, but, right. but to, to try to break through traditional barriers and think about history in new and interesting ways, right? Which is part of the reason I like the, the reacting thing because it engages students with the past in ways that, that they hadn't thought about before and it makes it real for them. Even if as historians, we have certain concerns about uh, role-playing that, that are, are totally valid, but um, are things I think we can work through and actually use them to teach students about how we study the past. Yeah, I mean, I can see the argument about, oh, it's not historically accurate. But at the same time, though, I, I play those, I've never actually played one of those specific games, but I, I'm familiar with the general concept. But basically, you're assigning roles to students. And in order for the whole thing to succeed, the student has to immerse himself or herself in that person, that character that they're playing. They have to know the history. They have to know the context in order for them to succeed in the actual game. And students, they don't want to fall on their face in the middle of a game. They don't want to embarrass themselves in front of all their peers. So in a way, they kind of are forced to learn a lot of this stuff if they, if they, in order for this to work. And I know that not all students will put the same amount of effort into it, but 
a lot of them will because they want to succeed. They want to get the good grade and all of that. But then a lot of them also find out once they get immersed into it, they kind of actually get interested in the stuff that they're being forced to immerse themselves in. Yeah. And it's competitive. I mean, they want to beat their friends. I mean, I'm not saying that it's always successful. I mean, sometimes it's a complete and total disaster. And I try to think <laughs> really end the French Revolution as early as I humanly can, right? Like the Prussians show up and we're done. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, you know, the funny thing about the games is, is sometimes I'll have these students who don't seem engaged or interested at all. And then they'll take the midterm exam and that's the stuff they'll know, right? They'll know the stuff that they learn from the game and they'll know it really, really well and have this really sophisticated analysis. And then in other parts of the exam often don't do as well. It's there's, there's, there's some sort of there's some sort of study to be done here, Rob. I'll, I'll let you do it. Oh, I'm not going to do it, but yeah, <laughs> I'm sure there is. I mean, there's a, there's actually a, a growing literature on reacting and other forms of role-playing and, and pedagogical purpose and results and all that kind of assessment stuff that I don't like to talk about. But so you are the president of HNet, at least for you know a few more days. What was that role? What did you do as president? So what what was what was your life like as as the president in the uh, the White House at HNet HQ? Yeah, yeah. So HNet is a nonprofit organization that's um, housed at Michigan State. It has a professional staff. It has an executive director who has you know this has been a long term position. It also has a professional staff. So we have um, associate directors who do just absolutely fantastic work. They work with um, graduate students and other students at MSU. And they're really, in, in my view, I mean, other than the editors who are, who are out there doing so much work as volunteers, but that professional staff at MSU is really what makes HNet work. But outside of those people who are paid, the professional staff, the rest of HNet is entirely the labor, <laughs> frankly, and ideas of, of volunteers. So all, you know, all every network has has editors, has well, most of them have review editors. The entire enterprise is governed by an elected council, including a couple of vice presidents, and then the, the president is, I guess, is the, the chair of that council. I mean, I would like to say I, I, I wish I, I would have done more as president of HNet. This has been a particularly important time for fundraising and for making sure that that HNet is stabilized and there for us in the future. I mean, and that's one thing I would say is, I mean, if you think about your your academic career, chances are you've used HNet, you've posted, or you've gotten a job there, if you responded to a, a call for papers or something, right? Think about how it's been useful to you. I mean, it doesn't just exist without people, you know without sending the collection plate around. And HNet's not in any danger at this point, but it's really important to think about the future of HNet and how important it is to all of us and how we want to see it grow. And if you're not part of HNet, now's the time to go to go join and find a network and, and to jump in and, and help make something happen or to found a new network. But back to, I don't even remember what my original point was, but so it's really important to give back, I would say. So that's been a, a lot of what's been important in the last year or so. It's been the 25th anniversary of HNet, which um, the professional staff has done a really great job and, and a whole bunch of networks have done a great job of celebrating that, of, of mining. I mean, I was just looking back at the, I think the first HNet listserv that I had, uh, that I subscribed to as a graduate student, which was H Albion, which is the English, the, the British studies listserv. And I was looking back and you can look at messages and conversations and bibliographies and all this stuff back to 1993. Um, and one of the things that, that the staff did in this 25th anniversary year was to go back and mine those and kind of bring forward meaningful and important conversations that have been had on HNET over the past 25 years. So, I, I mean, I hope that's my contribution then. I mean, other than, than chairing council meetings, is that, that people will 
seriously think about the role of HNet in in their academic careers and really think about about giving back in some way, whether that's serving as an editor or whether that's giving you know ten bucks a month or volunteering to serve in in some capacity like you know president. I mean, if I did it, I'm sure you can do it. Um, so yeah, to think about really the significance of HNet and making sure that we ensure the future for, for HNet moving forward. That's an interesting thought, and I mean, when I think back on HNet, yeah, I I don't. As far as I know, anyway, I never got a job through HNet, but I did. I, I think I went to my first graduate student conference and presented a paper. I think that came through was in response to a CF a call for papers that came through HNet. Uh, there's a couple other conferences that I've kind of hooked up with over the years that came through HNet, and then I mentioned them before. Like I've got uh, in H Podcast, I'm one of the editors on there. So yeah, it is interesting to think that. Yeah, on the one hand, you think of HNet as, ah, that's just, you know, it comes into my email every day, but it does actually do stuff, and there is stuff happening, and there's been stuff that, you know, stuff on my CV or a result of what came out of HNet, and that's, that's a good point. I haven't really thought about it that way. Did you think of anything that you would like to recommend to the dozens and dozeners of listeners out there? <laughs> So right now I'm reading, I'm actually writing a book review about, um, well, not writing yet because I haven't finished reading it, but it's it's Miles Taylor's uh, new book called Empress, the Queen Victoria in India. And it's about the, the kind of real and authentic, I don't know if that's the word I want, but the, the ways in which Queen Victoria engaged with India. Though this is something I, I maybe could have said in in the beginning, but I I grew up in a working class community. I always had an interest in social history. When I went to my PhD program, I thought I was going to be a social historian of the effects of the empire, the British Empire, on working class people in Britain, um, which is something that my my advisor had written his first book about. I don't know how many years, thirty years before that, he had kind of moved on from there, and and I too moved on from there. But in many ways, I mean, I remain really fascinated by the ways in which um, the empire affected both or informed both the places where it was, right, out in the world. I mean, one of the things that I really focus on in my book about the royal tours is the ways in which people engaged in this idea of empire. So to back up one more time, I mean, this book I wrote is about how various stakeholders and people in the British Empire, from governors to the the settlers of European descent to Western educated, uh, I call them respectables, um, people of African and Asian descent, princes and traditional rulers, how all of these different kinds of people engaged with the with the monarchy and the idea of empire when you know, these little these little, little royal children and grandchildren of Queen Victoria came to visit them in the 19th century. And what I wanted as the social historian was them to kind of resist and protest and to say, we don't like the empire because I don't like the empire, but really they engaged in it in ways that, that didn't that you know didn't fit my preconceptions of it. You know, in many ways they embraced it, they used it, they appealed to it, they said, We belong here, so you need to treat us in an appropriately British way, right? Like there are examples in in Southern Africa where there are these these um, African newspaper editors who are saying, look at how these white settlers are acting and how they're they're treating indigenous people. They're not acting British. If any if any people were the real British people here, we're the ones who are acting truly up to sort of British standards and the British Constitution and all that kind of stuff. So I've always been interested. You know, this is a long way of saying that, or not always, but I've been long interested in the way that Britain and and particularly the Empire have kind of informed each other. And you know, this is a big topic of the literature and 
how they mutually constituted each other, right? How, how Britain was made by empire and empire is made by Britain, but how it's a two-way street, which is against a lot of what, you know, the traditional scholarship said a long time ago, which is basically like empire is a receptacle of whatever Britain wants and da 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 But so this book, Empress, Queen Victoria in India, is about, I mean, if you think about Queen Victoria, she sends, I mean, my sends her children and grandchildren out to the empire. I'm kind of, I mean, we get in trouble for this, but I'm kind of, of a skeptical school that thinks that most common people in Britain probably didn't think about the empire all that much at least i mean it was kind of there and it existed and it was what it was and it wasn't going to go away it was more you know below it was under the radar in terms of it clearly informed their lives and you know they were using stuff from there but it's not something they they thought about sort of consciously it doesn't really affect their day-to-day lives yeah, and I mean, and I'll get, I'll get in big, I get, you get in big trouble for saying that. I mean, there's oh. a whole literature, and it's complicated. But I mean, when when I look at Queen Victoria, and when I look at how she sort of engages in, in the empire, I mean, there's a lot of stuff on Queen Victoria. Um, I think Queen Victoria is far more progressive and kind of open-minded than we might think she was. But at the same time, I think there are, are limits to that. But so what Miles Taylor's argument in this book is, and so far I'm convinced, and so far it's changing my perceptions of, of Victoria in lots of ways is that that in a real and authentic way uh, flying against what I argue elsewhere which I think is cool to be as a historian and I mean I think this is important to convey to students is that we can be convinced and our, our minds can be changed just because we thought something um, and we researched something and these are the you know these are the conclusions we came to those things can be challenged and we can think differently and anew about things but so Taylor is, is looking at both the effect of India as a colony and as a place and as an idea on Victoria and how she really is thoughtful and engaged and interested and spends an enormous amount of time in a really profound way engaging with with India. I mean, whether her conceptions of it were based in reality, I think is debatable, but I think it's really helpful in terms of thinking about the role of empire in Britain. And and in this case, I mean, we tend to, I I mean, I think most people tend to think about the Victorian monarchy as largely figurehead because I think it was, um, and largely a cultural symbol that, that came to be used. I mean, there were probably more statues of Queen Victoria across, you know, lots of them have been knocked down now, but there are probably more statues of Queen Victoria than almost anyone across the world. But to think about the person and we tend to think of her as largely a figurehead, someone whose image is used to convey a particular idea, to convince people of, of you know, this empire being a good thing, of, of making them think of themselves as part of it. But here in Taylor's book, he's, he's thinking about really the serious ways in which Victoria engaged with India, which I think is particularly cool because here's taking a figure who an enormous amount has been written on. And you tell students this sometimes, right? They can figure out a new way to approach things, even if it's been written on a bajillion times. Um, but here's Taylor kind of really rethinking about Victoria and how she thought about India and how she engaged with India. And this really whole idea of the Victorian monarchy. So it's cool. I haven't finished it and it's pretty long, but I would recommend it. It's called uh, Empress, Queen Victoria and in India. Huh, that sounds pretty cool. I have two recommendations. One of them is this book, uh, which is kind of goes along those lines, which I think you you actually discussed a few minutes ago by this guy named Charles Reed called uh, Royal Tourists, Colonial Subjects in the Making of a British World, 1860 to 1911. It's about a lot of the things that you just said. My other recommendation for this week is a book called Chasing the Last Laugh, uh, How Mark Twain Escaped Debt and Disgrace in a Round-the-World Comedy Tour by Richard Zacks. It's a... <laughs> It, it, Richard Zacks is kind of a pop historian. Um, he's written books on well, – I'm drawing a blank on what books he's written at the moment. But anyway, he's he's a good writer, and it makes for an interesting uh, story. So the basic storyline in this book 
is it's it's picking up on Mark Twain's kind of the the last years of his career when he was one of the worst businessmen in the world and one of the worst investors in the world and so even though he was one of the wealthiest or you know the best selling author in the world and everybody loved him and all of that he was flat broke because he kept investing all of his money in really stupid schemes and uh, so he was broke and he was in a huge amount of debt he was he was he tried to declare bankruptcy but there was no bankruptcy law in effect at that point so he couldn't actually get any protection from his creditors and all of that and so one of his friends said well you know what you should just go on tour around the world just just giving lectures and t- telling stories because you're a storyteller and you know Mark Twain he hated the idea but he was flat broke and owed a whole lot of money to a whole lot of people so he just said all right fine I'll do it and so the book is basically tracking him as he goes around the world and so he went to um, you know he did a, a tour around America first and then he went over to you know Australia New Zealand he eventually went through India uh, and and did this this tour where he you know he, it was a, a speaking tour where he would give a, you know a two hour lecture and he would there would always be these glowing reviews because he was an amazingly funny guy and all of that but the interesting part of it is that it it's it's not focusing as much on him and his stories it's really focusing on kind of the context so it talks about like the travel logistics and the people the local PR reps who were leading him from place to place and what was his relationships with them and so it it gives a sense of kind of the world that this was happening in it was it's not just focusing on the jokes that he told in his lectures because he basically recycled the lectures from place to place of course i think he he had like you know four lectures <laughs> but he gave each of them a hundred times or something so so he got, you know he told the same stories every time and so it doesn't dwell on the stories it focuses more on the the travel and it just it's it's a really interesting story because of course traveling back then is very different from today i mean this is in the 1890s so this is an era of of locomotives and steamships and all of that so travel is much faster than it would have been earlier in the century but it's still different from what we have today today we can get anywhere in the world within a matter of hours but back then even though this was still technically this modern this massively advanced world uh, it was still work operating on an 18th century or 19th century timeline where, you know, it would still take months for letters to get from one place to another. And so it's just an interesting kind of travelogue following Mark Twain around the world. And of course, he's Mark Twain, so he has all these kind of humorous insights into the people that he comes across. And he was a remarkably, you know, progressive is not quite the right word, but from a modern perspective, he was kind of forward thinking on things like race and all of that uh which is kind of refreshing <laughs> for when you're reading about guys walking uh, giving tours in the in the 19th century uh so anyway it's a good book uh, chasing the last laugh how mark twain escaped debt and disgrace with around the world comedy tour by richard zacks <laughs> that's that so my last question for you is uh so there's there's been an election right and somebody's been picked as president for next year mm-hmm are you going to cede power peacefully or are you going to just refuse to leave once once December 31st rolls around? I mean, the, the entire basis of the HNET political system rests on the peaceful transition of power, Rob. Mm. Uh, we haven't had a violent revolt at HNET in, uh, probably since, you know, the, the late 1990s, probably is the last time. Okay. Yeah, I, I remember the, the Great War. The, the great HNet chaos of uh, mm-hmm. 98, yeah. Uh, we, we heard about that from our grandparents. Mm-hmm. It was a dark time. Okay, so uh, so you're just going to cede power just like that. All right. Well, mm-hmm. that's not very dramatic. I was hoping to get the first scoop on your revolt against the election or something. All right, well, in that case, well, uh, thanks for uh, joining me today, Chaz. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you all for joining us today. 
If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at filibusterhist. Happy holidays, and we'll see you all again in 2019. See? No problem. Cut out, uh, cut out all the bad parts. You'll have at least six and a half minutes left. <laughs> yeah, we'll 